0: start off the same way we we always start off here in reading our catechism questions for this section here. And so we say, what are, get it where everybody can see it, this section's all about providence. And so question 14 is, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, "...and governing of all his creatures and all their actions." Okay, that was 14. I don't know if Adam has been doing 15 back-to-back. I can't remember if we're going to do it. So, question 15. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered to a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Okay, so he's going to come back and cover this question in the, the final week or two, I think. But the majority of the time is going to be spent on just providence in general. And I kind of, first of all, gave a scriptural over... Well, first of all, he gave a bunch of definitions and a historical look at God's providence and what that looks like. And then last week he did a scriptural overview, Uh, I'm I'm forever going to call it my popcorn method, I should trademark that in some way, so uh, using my popcorn method of of just going all over the Bible and looking at the scriptural support for for providence. And he asked me specifically today to talk about God's providence in providing leaders for the church, so elders, bishops, pastors, whatever you want to call it, we'll get more, more in depth in that in just a second. Um, Might be a shorter lesson. I don't know. Welcome any input in here, but I've got a few notes here to kind of lead us through God's progressively revealing how he's going to have leaders in the church throughout all of redemptive history. So first of all, the first thing I'm going to do is kind of define what I'm talking about here as the church and the church is the way the way that I'm going to refer to it is God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's what I'm going to refer to as the church. And so what this is typically identified in as in the Old Testament it is is Israel. That's typically what God's people are called in the Old Testament is Israel. But one thing I do want to point out here is that this is not God's is God's Israel in the Old Testament is not conditional on an ethnicity, nor is it conditional on a political state. OK, so because you see examples of this, it's mainly framed that way in the Old Testament. But you do see examples or counterexamples of this sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Right. A couple of big ones being Rahab. Right. Rahab was not an ethnic Israelite and Rahab. Is if It was counted to her as faith. Faith is what's important here, not ethnicity. So Rahab, not an ethnic Israelite, but she's considered one of the people of God. Same thing with Ruth, right? Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth was not an ethnic Israelite, but she is counted as the people of God because she displayed the faith in God that the people of God are supposed to have. So those are two that are not ethnic Israelites that come in and are part of what I'm calling the church. A counterexample to this is uh, Achan. Right, So if you remember the book of Joshua, Achan is an ethnic Israelite, but a- Achan does not have the faith and obedience that accompanies being a member of God's church. So Achan gets cut off of God's people. He literally gets killed because he does something that God explicitly tells him not to do, displaying his lack of faith and his lack of, of the justifying work of God. So Achan gets cut off from his people. So Achan is not a part of God's people, even though he is an ethnic Israelite. You see that all throughout the Old Testament, same, same patterns. Um, God eventually cuts off a lot of the people whenever they go into Babylonian captivity because they do not have the measure of faith that is needed to be a part of God's people. And so they're not a part of the church, even though they're ethnic Israelites. Um, it's not restricted to a political state either. You see this with Naaman, right? Naaman is, oh, I forget now, speaking off the cuff here, Naaman is an Assyrian, is that right? Is he Syrian or Assyrian? I don't remember. Syrian? Syrian? I don't remember. So it's on the record. I don't, I'm off here. I'm not infallible. So um, Naaman, right, he's a political leader of a foreign country. (laughs) He's a political leader of a foreign country, but he does display the measures measures of faith to be counted as a member of God's people. So it's not dependent, it's not conditional on ethnicity nor political state, okay? Israel is God's people. Israel is the church in the Old Testament, okay? So those are examples, counterexamples to that. And so we're going to kind of step through how God provides leaders for his church in the Old Testament and then step over to the New Testament in the same way. And another thing I want to first point out is that this is all, remember, redemptive history is building up to Christ coming to redeem his people. That's the whole point of the whole thing. Christ coming to redeem his people another thing I need to state up front is this is is not plan B, right? We talked about this in whenever we were going through creation in the fall, is that Christ coming to redeem the people is not plan B. This is Christ coming to save his people was this intra-Trinitarian plan from eternity past, okay? God did not even look into the future to see man falls, right? This is the the intra-Trinitarian plan is that Christ is going to come redeem his people. This is not... God reacting to the fall, okay? So get that stated up front, too. All right, so God is going to work out everything together for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8, right? And God is going to do this by sending Jesus Christ. This is how it's most clearly manifested that God is working out all things for those, for the good of those that love him. Is it clearly most manifested in sending Christ to save us from our sins and for him to bear the wrath that we deserve all right and so this is what the Old Testament is about right the Old Testament is about the preparation for the Messiah the preparation for the Messiah the Messiah is com- is coming but the Messiah has to get here the people that God is sending the Messiah through have to survive long enough for the Messiah to get here right physically so that's what the Old Testament is about, overarching, right? There's tons of details in there, but that's kind of the overarching theme of the Old Testament. He's got to serve everyone that chronologically comes before the Messiah, at least in his humanity, right? They, these people have to be preserved. The line of the Messiah has to be preserved in his humanity. And so we're going to look at four examples, right? In God's providence, you can see God's providence touching everything in the Old Testament, right? It's, it's everything. Everything is there. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. See it in the New Testament, too. But specifically in the Old, you see God actively involved in the lives of his people. A whole lot there in the narratives explicitly, right? And so let's look... Um, at a few examples here. I picked out four. These are just ones that, that came to my mind whenever I was preparing the example. There could be many, many others, but let's, let's just look at four. First of all, uh, Adam alluded to this a little bit last week, and I'm, I think he's going might, to, might go into a little more detail about this one. But first of all, it's probably it's probably one that you would probably think of if you were thinking about this too, is the life of Joseph. Okay, So you see, you remember uh, Joseph, right? Joseph is as Jacob's uh, son that he loves more than the other sons, for better or for worse. And he favors this son. And in part of favoring this son, throughout all the culmination of the favoring, he gives him the coat and it makes all the, the other brothers extremely jealous about all the favoritism that Jacob has shown to Joseph. And so they, first of all, they think about killing him. But in God's providence, they did not kill him, first of all. They instead threw him into a pit and then sold him to some Ishmaelite slave traders that were coming along. And then whenever they sold him to to those slave traders, the slave traders took him down to Egypt. And he's in Egypt for a long time. He has some good fortune and some, some good providence and some bad providence there, right? Because there's no such thing as chance. No such thing as fortune. There's just providence. He has some good providence down there, some bad, sweet and bitter. And then at the end of the story... You see the reason why Joseph has been preserved all of this time, right? Cuz there's a famine coming. And okay? there's a famine coming and it's a really bad famine and only Joseph really has the wisdom and the foresight, uh, literally, foresight to see that this famine is coming and that he needs to make plans to preserve all of the people in this region that the famine is coming, okay? And so he does he makes a plan for the storage of grain and to sell the grain back to the people and then his brothers end up coming back and there's that whole family reunion where everybody's everybody's crying and Joseph plays a few tricks on them but then in the end everyone is preserved right the whole the tribe the tribes of Jacob are preserved and I said not tribes yet but the sons of Jacob are preserved and then their their sons are preserved and you know that the Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah, so the tribe of Judah has to be preserved, all because of all of these series of events that has to happen for Joseph to be preserved in order to ensure that everyone survives the famine. Okay, that's, that's kind of the whole point of the whole thing towards the end. And then you get this great verse from Joseph, this great, great quote from Joseph at the end of Genesis that points directly to God's providence here points directly to God's providence in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. This is what Joseph says. And this is, remember, this is also after Jacob has died, and all of the brothers think that Joseph, now that Jacob's dead, Joseph is going to turn back against them, and he's going to be angry with them now that the father's gone, and he's going to turn on them, and he's going to kill them, or provoke some sort of harm to them. But Joseph disagrees. Joseph says in verses 19 and 20, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So that's pointing directly to God's providence. Even things that seem to be evil, are part of God's providence that may be hard for us to process, especially when those evil things are happening to us. These things are still part of God's providence for the preserving of his people, for him working out everything for the good of his people. Even if it might seem evil, even if it is evil, it's still part of God's providence. You see this most clearly manifested on the cross, right? There's no greater amount of evil that was displayed in the history of the world. It's on the cross when the perfect, unblemished Son of God is sacrificed for the benefit of god 's people to bring about the good for god 's people, so even all the massive amount of evil that 's happening there is under god 's providence to bring about good so i wasn 't going to plan on bringing up Jesus that quick, but there it is so joseph there's the life of Joseph is an example of God providing remember we 're talking about here a leader for his church. Okay? That Joseph was one of those leaders. Next example, David. So, David, this is we're just going to briefly hear one verse, one verse in 1st Samuel 16, you know, David being the greatest king in the history of Israel, the man after God's own heart the one whom all of the other kings are going to be judged. Uh, David is such an important figure in, in biblical history and in covenant theology that God makes a covenant with him, that one of his sons will be on the throne forever. This will be Christ, and Christ, uh, and many of the descriptions that he has described in the New Testament, one of the main ones is the son of David. If you were here for my Advent sermon, then you know a whole lot about that, because that's kind of what it was all about, God, Christ being the son of David, but so in order for Christ and the Messiah to come through the Davidic line and for him to assume his rightful kingship as the son of David, first thing that has to happen is for David, to has to be made king first, right? So David has to come about as a ruler or a leader of God's people. And you'll remember, if you know anything about you know, his history of the Old Testament, is that David is not the first leader of Israel. Saul is right. the people of Israel. First of all, they want a king. Because they want to be like all the other nations, and I don't want a king for righteous reasons. And Samuel tells them, look, you don't need a king, you've got judges, you know, you've got God's, God's plan like that to work work about his laws through the judges. They said, No, we want a king, all the other nations around us have a king, give us a king. So God gives them Saul and his bitter providence, and Saul is not a good king. So the kingship gets ripped away from Saul and it gets given to David. And this is how it gets described about being given to David here in first Samuel sixteen, verse one. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send to you Jesse send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God has rejected Saul and his providence, and then he tells Samuel to go. You can see God's obvious hand working here in guiding Samuel to go anoint the son of Jesse in Bethlehem because God has, there's that word provided, right? It's the same root as providence. God has provided for himself a king among Jesse's sons. So here's God providing the ultimate king, the ultimate king of Israel, David. So in God's providence, God provides rulers for his people, leaders for his church. Okay. Now the next one, so that's David. We got Joseph, we got David. I said I was going to give you four examples here. The next one is uh, Cyrus. Cyrus is kind of an interesting case because Cyrus is not really technically a leader of the church. Cyrus is a king of Persia. Okay. So why are we talking about him? Well, Cyrus is used specifically by God to bring about the Messiah in a specific way. So Cyrus, Cyrus is a guy that comes to power in the kingdom of Persia in 538 B.C. Cyrus, if you remember, if you remember reading in, in Daniel and um, Ezra and Nehemiah, some of those history books, even some of the preface to Esther, Cyrus is the one that is going to free God's people and send them back to Judah, right? They're in Babylon. Give you some ancient Near East history here. You've got Assyria is a power that comes in, right? You've got Assyria. They take over the land. Babylon then comes in and they take over all of the land that Assyria captures, including Judah. Assyria was never able to capture Judah. They pretty much captured everything around it. But they weren't able to capture Judah. They didn't make it down to Egypt either. But Babylon comes in and captures all of the land of Assyria, including Judah and Egypt, and they take all the Judeans off captive into Babylon. Right? You know that. Well, after that happens, then Persia overtakes Babylon. Okay, so Persia is the dominant power at the time. And they they know all they rule all of the world that. This region of the world is really aware of, Persia does, and Cyrus is the king. And Cyrus is the one that frees the people and sends them back to Judea or Judah. But here's a very curious thing, a very awesome thing. 200 years before Cyrus does this, this is back when Assyria is the dominant power. 200 years before this, Isaiah makes a prophecy in Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 13, this is what it says. This is a prophecy 200 years before Cyrus sends the people of Judah back to Judah. It says, Isaiah says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, so a leader that God has placed for a purpose to Cyrus 200 years before Cyrus is around whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and this is God talking, and level the exalted places, and I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So everything that's going to come about. 200 years from now, God is guiding the whole way. He's created all this. He's guiding it for his people. God even, um, taunts is a bad word here because there's has bad connotations to it, but God, God rightfully displays his power here in what he is saying. I bring all of these things to pass. I do this because I need my people back into the land, okay? and I'm going to bring Cyrus to do that. And if you think about it, all the things that have to happen between 200 years between when Isaiah makes this prophecy and when Cyrus sets the people free, right? All of the things of Babylon coming to power, Persia coming to power, Cyrus himself has to be preserved through his father and his father and his mother and her mother and all of the connections that has to happen there. So... No disease has to come and blight the family of Cyrus. All of these things have to happen for God to be true to his word. And this happens through God's providence. God providing someone to lead his people back into the land, even though Cyrus might not technically be a leader of the church. I thought this was a good example of God's providence and guiding things and guiding the leaders that he needs to bring about his ends. Okay. So that was the third example. The fourth one is a very curious example. Very curious example. I'm not going to read a passage of Scripture here. I'm just going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about Esther. So you know the book of Esther. My first Sunday school series I taught. Oh, what was that? That was my second one I taught. The first one I taught was during the pandemic through Zoom. Not a good idea. <laughs> not a, it was terrible. Um, so my first real one was through Esther. That was three or four years ago. Um, but, uh, one of the things that I I kind of mentioned throughout Esther, and one of the things you might remember from Esther is that Esther is a very curious book of the Bible because God is not mentioned at all. If you go through Esther, Esther's 10 chapters, it reads like a narrative, it reads like a soap opera. It's very compelling read, right? It's a a fun narrative, fun, but, um, it's an interesting narrative to read that keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat the whole time. But the curious thing about it being included in the scriptures is that God is not mentioned anywhere. None at all. His name is not mentioned. His generic name for God is not mentioned. His personal name is not mentioned. Um, There's not even any any sort of sacrifices that might point you to God. There's nothing that says that God is anywhere in this book. But God has provided this leader, Esther and Mordecai, because Mordecai is a big player in there too, Remember, Haman comes in, and he's trying to just wipe out all the Jews, right? And Esther happens after Cyrus has set them back free, right? They're back in the land, but the book of Esther doesn't happen in the land. It still takes place in the kingdom of Persia. But it's Cyrus's grandson, I believe, that's on the throne then. And Haman comes, and he's trying to murder all of the Jews, but remember, the Messiah has still got to come from the Jews, right? That prophecy has to be fulfilled. So God provides Mordecai and Esther to lead the people out of this, this genocide that Haman plans. But the curious thing is that God is not explicitly told. It's not, we're not explicitly told that it's God doing this, but you can see it throughout the whole book, right? Whenever the king Ahasuerus wakes up in the middle of the night and when he wakes up, he wakes up because of a dream, right? Who gives you dreams? God gives you dreams. He wakes up because of a dream, and when he wakes up, Haman just happens to be at the door whenever he's trying to make his his play there, but then uh, later on in the book, Haman, um, Esther prepares these two feasts, and she convinces the king to that there's a person that's trying to kill her people, and then she reveals that it's Haman that's doing this, and then the king is so mad that he comes, he goes out into his garden to cool off a bit. But whenever he comes back in, there's a situation that he walks in on that he sees that's something that he thinks is happening. It's not actually happening, but he happens to walk in at exactly the, the point to where he thinks Haman is assaulting his queen. And so he, he hangs Haman on the gallows at that point, and then he gives Esther whatever he, she wants and, and saving the people, and they're able to actually plunder the people that are trying to kill them. But you can see God's hand of providence throughout this entire book for all the timings to occur exactly how they need to work, even though God is not mentioned. And that is a great comfort for us in our day, I think. Effort, Esther is one of the most comforting books in that way because we don't get direct revelation from God anymore, right? That's closed now. The direct revelation from God is contained here. And but you can still see God's hand working to bring about the preservation of His people and to bring Him where they bring them where they need to go. And so Esther is a very comforting book in that way. So those are the four examples that I was that I was going to give of God providing the leaders for His church: uh, Joseph, David, Cyrus, and then Esther slash Mordecai. All right. And then before we move on to the New Testament, I was going to give one counter example. Counter example here where God brings a big old fat condemnation on those that are doing a terrible job at being leaders. And this is in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, one of the things we're pointing out through, through the rest of today is that God's leaders are often called shepherds here. They're called it throughout the Old Testament, especially the kings and the judges and the princes of the people are called shepherds. They're called that in the New Testament quite a bit as well, and they're called that explicitly here in Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, "'My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, "'with none to search or seek for them. "'Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. "'As I live, declares the Lord God, "'Surely, because my sheep have become a prey "'and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts "'since there was no shepherd, "'and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, "'but the shepherds have fed themselves "'and have not fed my sheep, "'therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord.' Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they that they may not be food for them. So you got this condemnation here on the leaders of Judah at this point, that they are not taking care of the sheep. The shepherds are not taking care of the sheep. That is not the way it's supposed to be, right? So. What does God do? God is going to provide new shepherds. God is going to lead the sheep in the way that they need to go. And that brings us to the New Testament and the New Testament model for the leaders of the church or the leaders of God's people. So first of all, to point this out again in the New Testament, as there is in the Old this is not dependent on ethnicity. This is not dependent on, upon political state. But we are all united to each other under the blood of Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. All united under the blood of Christ, the head shepherd, the good shepherd, the ultimate leader, right? So we get that from John 10. Whenever we were going through the I am statements, I covered that. Dirk covered it again last week that there is a good shepherd, a good shepherd that takes care of his sheep, that has chosen his sheep. And we'll take care of them. But that good shepherd has ascended on high. And when he ascended on high, he left out. He left under shepherds to take care for the sheep for him physically here. Right. And so when he ascended, he right before he, com- he ascended, he commissioned these under shepherds to first to go out and spread the gospel. Right. Does that in the of book of Matthew go out and spread the gospel. They start in Judea and then they spread it to the ends of the earth. That's the great commission to go out and to do that. This starts with the 12 apostles minus Judas and then adding Paul later. These are the 12 men that have been commissioned directly by Christ who learned from him directly. Starts with them. And then these men go out and commission other men under the authority of Christ to be leaders of local churches. That is the New Testament model, leaders of local churches. You've got Christ at the head, then he starts spreading the gospel with 12 apostles, and then these 12 apostles commission other men as local leaders of local bodies. So a couple of passages of scripture real quick. 1 Peter 5. Remember, it really, it kind of starts with Peter. You've got that that passage where Christ commissions Peter and says on this, um, Peter, on you, I will build my church. You're the rock on which I will build my church. That's a paraphrase, by the way. You're the rock on which I will build my church. And so Peter is kind of the, the first under-shepherd, the first pastor, the first overseer. And Peter writes this in his general, first general epistle in chapter 5. If I can get there, I was going the wrong way while I was talking. 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus. Peter says this in verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter here is really encouraging the elders that are in whatever you know this is a general epistle it 's not written to a specific local body, but it 's probably shared around to multiple local bodies in in the area and so Peter is, is writing to the elders there on these various local bodies to exhort them to encourage them to. Show them what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing, but ultimately to encourage them to shepherd the flock of God in opposition to what those people were doing in Ezekiel 34, to shepherd them in a way that God requires of them. And at the end, they're going to receive an unfading crown of glory. Peter comes in here and he, he makes a, a, an allusion back to Jesus there. The chief shepherd appears. When he comes back, you're going to receive an, ultimate crown of, uh, an unfading crown of glory for your special work as elders here. And so Peter here, first of all, identifies himself as an elder and then talks to the elders of other local churches to encourage them there. So Peter, knowing full full well the New Testament model, kind of um, emphasizes it here. The other example here of the New Testament model is in Acts 28. Acts 28, this is going to be Paul talking, one of the other original 12. Well, I guess not the original 12, but... You know what I mean? After Judas hangs himself, Paul comes in to replace Judas as one of the original 12. So in Acts 20, Paul here is talking. We're going to verse 28. Paul is talking here to the Ephesian elders. Right. This is a narrative. This isn't a letter. So Luke is recording this as Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And the church at Ephesus is an important church, right? So you get it Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writing an epistle to the Ephesians. Then in in Revelations, they've kind of backslidden a bit, and uh, Jesus comes in to try to correct them. Uh, But they have a a series of of pastors there, Timothy being one of the pastors of Ephesus eventually. Um, Probably not at this point. But uh, Paul here in verse 28 and speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, That's a, a pretty, pretty weighty verse right there. But this one is very explicit as far as. What we're studying today, how God's providence is providing leaders for the church, right? Paul directly says it here the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of the church, right? The Holy Spirit being part of the Trinity, being part of God's providence in leading these men to lead the church there at Ephesus, okay? So, there, once again, there's other examples of this. Uh, the people, uh, Timothy has been commissioned by Paul to lead a church, uh, mainly at Ephesus. Same thing with Titus. Titus is an elder that's leading a church. And so what this, like I said, again, the New Testament model, just to reiterate, you've got the head shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. You've got his under shepherds there that are go, that go out. And these under shepherds go and commission other under shepherds to lead local churches. Okay. And what's interesting in this is that... Uh, once you read through the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, is that really most of the authority for the decisions made in the local body lies on the men that are leading the local body. That's why we're Congregationalists. Okay? We're Baptists, we're Congregationalists. So the decisions, the authority for the decisions made in the local body lies on the shoulders of the men leading the local body. Now, some of the times the men don't do a great job. And so Paul has to come in Or um, John or Peter or James even has to come in and has to correct some things that they might be doing wrong through their apostolic authority. But in general, the authority and the weight of responsibility also for the decisions made lie on the men that are leading the local body there. Okay, That's why we're Congregationalists. And so like I said the responsibility to shepherd lies with the local shepherds, lies with the under shepherds. And just as a point to bring up right here, we as Baptists do not make a distinction between the words bishop, elder, pastor, overseer, overseer, or shepherd. Bishop, elder, pastor, overseer, or shepherd all mean the same thing to us. They're all based on the same Greek word, episcopos, and they all mean the same thing to us, Baptists. So just going ahead and point that out too. Um, whatever title we, we typically use pastor or elder here. But they all all those words mean the same thing to us as Baptists. Okay. And once again, just to reiterate that this all happens under God's providence, right? The church is obtained with the blood of Christ. Paul says that in verse twenty eight of Acts twenty. And he also says the Holy Spirit is the one that guides the local leaders who has placed the local leaders there and guides them. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the one that establishes the leaders of the local churches. So this is the New Testament model. Once again, this is all under the topic, the umbrella of God's providence in providing leaders for his people, the church. Alright. So we're coming up pretty close to the end here, and a couple of things that I would I told Adam that I would bring up that I would mention is some of the responsibilities of as a member of a New Testament church in this context. One is to pray for your elders, right? This should be obvious. We should all be praying for Pastor Thomas because, um, like Peter describes, like Paul describes in other places, this is a weighty responsibility to be an elder pastor of a church. So we should be constantly praying for your elders in your local church. At the same time, you should hold them to the standards of Scripture, if your, your, elder is, your elder pastor is not infallible, right? We know that. All men are not. So we should hold them to the standards of Scripture. But at the same time, you're holding them to the standards of Scripture. You are to trust in God's providence and who he has placed in the leadership of the local body. Right? So hold them to the standards of Scripture, but trust in God's providence and who he has placed in the leadership of the local body. Now, I'm not... Talking about here, you see this a lot in a lot of the hyper charismatic churches that they have this, this idea of, I think they phrase it as touch, not God's anointed, right? They're not, you're not allowed to question at all the leaders of the church, the pastors, elders, you're not, you can't bring any, anything. Say anything negative about them or bring anything against them, even if it's based on scripture. So you have to hold these both of these things in your hand. Trust in God's providence and who is provided to lead the church, but at the same time hold that leader to the standards of Scripture, right? So those are two things that you have responsibility of as a member of a New Testament church. And then one thing Adam specifically asked me to mention is to be careful of the online trap of thinking that your best spiritual growth is is going to come through the internet. God has provided local churches as the place where people grow. And I know there is a great temptation, right? The internet is a two-edged sword in a lot of ways. And there are many great preachers. There are many great podcasts. There are many great forums out there. And you can learn a lot of great things here but do not fall into the trap of thinking that, that 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 is where your best spiritual growth is going to come from because your spiritual growth is going to come from right here in the local church because this is the way that God has set it up. Okay, He has set up all of us to encourage and exhort each other. He has set it up to where the leaders of the church are the ones that you get the most spiritual growth from, not the internet. Okay, And this is, I think, uh, something that, this helped me think about this and a lot of other things, honestly, is to think about the time period in which Christ came. Okay? There's, this actually has a lot of implications for a lot of things in the Christian life. The time period and the technology available whenever Christ came. Right, Christ could have come right now. He could have waited until all the technology that we have right now to come And to be crucified right now, right? There's plenty of people out there right now that would be willing to crucify Christ, right? He didn't have to come then to be crucified. He could have come right now with all the technology that we have. But he was concerned and he came during a very specific time, right? He could have came right now whenever we could have recorded everything that he said. Instead, we just have this. This is what he wanted recorded. He could have came right now when every video, every picture could have been taken of him and we would have, had, we would have known exactly what he looked like, but he didn't, so we don't. And that's, that says something, right, whenever Christ came. Christ could have came right now to whenever we have the technology for him to lead a one unified, physically unified worldwide church where we all just watched him through a video feed. That could have happened, but he didn't. He came during the time period that he came, and he commissioned these local churches physically to be the places where his people are going to grow. That says a lot, right? I think that says a whole lot. So once again, trusting God's providence, looking to the chief shepherd, hold your leaders to the standard of scripture, pray for them, but mainly trusting God's providence here. And this took a lot longer than I thought it was going to, but I hope it was beneficial to you.